Hey, good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jason Coker, and I'm also a co-lead minister here. And by some miracle, this is actually too short for me, which is not, I don't see how that's possible, but okay. Uh, so we have been, as Joey mentioned, uh, going through a teaching series that we are calling uh, Heroes uh, of Faith, or Unlikely Heroes, rather. Um, and Unlikely Heroes as a series has really been about uh, people who we wouldn't normally think of as heroes, right? And so how is it that these particular characters, these uh, persons that we see in Scripture, how is it that they demonstrate faith in a way that becomes a kind of model for us. And so that's what we've been talking about. We're going to take a look at Esther chapter 4 today and visit the story of Esther. Before we do that, as usual, I'm going to ask you just to take a moment, pray with me before we jump into scripture. God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather here at the corner of Freeman and Topeka in downtown Oceanside. And we thank you for this community that's been here for 148 years, faithfully leaning into lives of courage and faith, gathering together to encourage each other and to live our lives in a way in the world that exemplifies your goodness. As we read this passage today, we ask that you would really open our hearts and minds, that you would give us an imagination for how we can be courageous in our faith in our lives each day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther is a curious book in the Hebrew Bible. It is in many ways a book that doesn't really seem to fit. It was written in about uh, the second century BC, so about 200 years before Christ came on the scene. And it's a, a kind of melodramatic novel. It's almost one of the first uh, novels or novellas in the ancient Hebrew world. It tells this sort of amazing, fantastic story that you've probably heard before. Maybe you grew up watching the Veggie Tales episode about Esther, or maybe as a parent, you watched the Veggie Tales episode about Esther 800 times while your kids were watching it. And if that's you, if you watched it, then you know the story. It's a pretty amazing story. It takes place when the Jewish people had been exiled into Persia. So when they were conquered as a people, they were carried off into Persia and then became integrated into the Persian society. And so the story takes it up from there. And it begins with this story of uh, King Ahasuerus throwing essentially a six-month-long drunken party. That's the beginning of the book. The king decides that he wants to throw a party for every single person in the land from rich to poor, and they start the party and they don't end it for six months. This is partly a display of wealth on the part of the king. So the king is sort of showing off his riches, so to speak. And in the process of this six month long party, the king decides to show off his trophy wife, Vashti. He calls upon Vashti at some point and summons her before the royal court and orders her to display her beauty before the royal court. She's literally a trophy wife. And of course, Vashti, understanding what the king is asking her to do, refuses. 
she sort of stands up for herself. She has a bit of dignity. In fact, the uh, rabbis from the middle, medieval period who are reading this text think that this text is asking her to do something particularly undignified. That when King Azarius calls her to come before the royal court and display her beauty with her crown on her head, that it means only her crown on her head. That she would be displaying her nude body before the court. That the king is essentially bragging about the beauty of his wife. So she says no, which is a dangerous thing to do, you know, to say no to a king in ancient Persia. The king uh, is infuriated by this, banishes Vashti, and then because the king needs a queen, the king conducts a, a kingdom-wide beauty pageant to find a replacement for Vashti. And this kingdom-wide beauty pageant ends up being won by Esther, who is a Jewish girl living in the kingdom of Sus. And Esther, of course, improbably, as the daughter of an exiled people, becomes essentially the queen of the empire. But as you've just heard, being the queen of the empire doesn't mean you have a lot of power. It really just means that you belong to the king. And so this was Esther's lot. And this is kind of the prologue to the story. After this happens, after Esther becomes the queen, another situation arises whereby Esther's cousin Mordecai, who's her adopted father, Mordecai learns that one of the king's highest advisors, Haman, has decided to kill all of the Jews in the empire. He's devised a plot to convince the king to kill all the Jews. Mordecai hears about this, and of course he's afraid for himself and his people. But his cousin, Esther, his adopted daughter, has just become the queen of the empire. So he goes to her and he beseeches her. He urges her, please go to the king and advocate on behalf of your people. Queen Esther, of course, says, the king doesn't know that I'm Jewish. And if I go to the king without being summoned, then that is punishable by death. I can't do that. Mordecai persuades her to advocate for the Jews, which she does. And so she calls for a three-day total fast to be conducted by all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. During that fast, they are essentially standing in solidarity on behalf of the Jews. And after that three-day fast, Queen Esther, knowing that the king likes a good party, throws the king a big party. The king, enjoying the party, says, Esther, whatever you want, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. She says, here's what I want. I want you to come to another party that I'm going to throw for you tomorrow. And so she throws him a second party and he comes to the second party and he is enamored with her and he's excited by the event. And he says to her again, give me anything that you want and I will make it happen. And that's when she says, will you save my people? She reveals the plot that Haman has been engaged in. And the king, of course, enamored with his queen, taken not only, the Bible says, by her beauty, but also by the way that she has sort of prepared to deliver this request, he agrees. The Jewish people are saved. Their enemies are defeated. Haman ends up being executed instead of Mordecai because Haman and Mordecai had a little rivalry and all is right for the end of the story. This essentially becomes the occasion for the Jewish festival of Purim. So for those of you who don't know, every spring, if you are Jewish, one of the big celebrations for the year is Purim. 
It's essentially the Jewish Mardi Gras. It's a carnival-like party where people dress in costumes and they eat way too much and they drink way too much and they gather as much food as they possibly can, they give it to the poor. It is essentially a kind of Mardi Gras every spring for people who are Jewish. This is still true for my colleagues who are local rabbis. Purim is a big deal for them. They blow it out. They do lots of fun things. You know, they don't throw, you know, beads like they do in New Orleans, uh, but they do other things, right? It's a big blast. And, and generally what we think is that Esther, as a novel, as a tale, this big melodrama of how it is that Esther was able to save her people becomes essentially the justification for Purim. Because we know that Purim actually predates the book of Esther. And so this is common in the ancient world where, you know, there would be this festival that people engage in and then they create a story that helps give a kind of backstory to it. So that's the story of Esther and the story of Purim. For our purposes today, there is one particular passage in Esther that I think is helpful for us when we're thinking about unlikely heroes or having a kind of uh, faith that is heroic. And I want to read that together today. It's Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will, of course, put it up on the screen for you. It says, when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now I want to pause there. What has happened right before this is that Mordecai has gone to Esther. He's learned about the plot for Haman to kill all the Jews. And he has thought, well, now my cousin, my adopted daughter is the queen. I will ask her to solve this problem for us. And Esther responded through a messenger. I can't do that. I don't have any real power. I can't even come and see the king without being summoned. And this is Mordecai's response. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, you're in danger too. Now, let's continue to the next slide. Then it goes on. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. And then continuing, then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids and also fast as you do. And after that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And then it ends by saying, Mordecai then said, went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. This passage, I think, is kind of the hinge point. This is the dilemma that Esther is faced with. She finds herself a previously poor, fairly marginalized ethnic minority in this town. And then through this sort of crazy event, this series of coincidences, she ends up becoming the queen by winning this beauty pageant. And now she's faced with this dilemma. Her people are in danger of being killed and eradicated by Haman. 
And if she says something, then she may be putting her own life at risk. If she reveals that she is Jewish, if she attempts to go to the king and advocate for her people without being summoned, then she literally could be put to death according to the law. That's risking a lot for her. She's in a place of genuine safety and security. She doesn't have to tell the king that she's Jewish. She can enjoy the power and privilege of her position. She is going to be okay. But if she advocates for her people, if she raises her voice, if she stands up on behalf of the Jews, then she risks being put to death. What seems to convince her is not so much the threat, I think. Mordecai tries all kinds of things to convince her to do this. Mordecai says, hey, listen, if you don't do this, then you might still be in danger. You're not as safe and as secure as you think you are. But then he says something that I think is more powerful. He says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Maybe this crazy story Maybe this insane set of coincidences whereby a, a marginalized Jewish girl suddenly becomes thrust into this position of power right before the Jews are threatened. Maybe the whole point of that, all the threads of your life coming together in this crazy moment were for this purpose. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a moment where you thought to yourself, you know, if... If A and B and C didn't happen before this, there's no way that this could have happened. Those kind of crazy moments of life where you think, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I planned, I couldn't have made this happen. But this is a moment that I couldn't have designed. You know, about 20 years ago, Janelle and I were living in Utah. This is my favorite coincidence story. I'm going to try not to look at Janelle while I share this story because she'll make me laugh. Right? But, but 20 years ago, Janelle and I were laying in bed in our house in Utah. We lived in the mountains of Utah at that time. And it was about 11 o'clock at night and the phone rang. And we sat bolt upright because if the phone rings at 11 o'clock at night, you're thinking there's something terrible has happened, right? So we sat straight up. And this was back in the day when your phones were actually like connected to the wall, right? So I had to like roll over and pick the phone up. I said, hello. And there's a, a voice on the other line asking for the supervisor, a voice that I did not recognize, a voice that I did recognize was intoxicated. Hi, can I talk to the supervisor? I was like, uh, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. And I'm thinking, who is this person who's calling at 11 o'clock at night asking to speak to the supervisor? I said, I'm sorry, you have the wrong number. This isn't the wrong number. I just need to speak to the supervisor so that I can get this cleared up. I said, sir, you have called the wrong number. This is a home. I don't know what it is that you're trying to figure out, but I am not the supervisor. This is not a place of business. He starts cussing me out. He starts yelling at me. And I realized this person is not going to hang up the phone. So I decided a different strategy. I say, I'd be happy to connect you to my supervisor. I just need a little bit of information first. He's like, thank you. You know, he's like vindicated. So I say, what's your name? He tells me his name. I don't recognize it at all. I say, well, what is it that you're trying to deal with? He says, you know, it's my uh, water bill and it's wrong. I need you to fix what's wrong on my bill. I'm like, oh, this guy named Charlie is calling to fix his water bill. I don't, I don't know how to get through this. So I say, all right, well, where do you live? He said, I live in San Bernardino. That's a little weird. That's the town I was born in. 
Is it San Bernardino? Somebody's trying to fix a water bill in San Bernardino named Charlie. Okay, Charlie, well, where are you now? Oh, I'm at such and such a bar. I said, you're calling from a bar? Like, I said, okay, I need a little bit more information and then I'll be able to connect you to my supervisor and get this figured out for you. I said, uh, are you in that bar with anybody? Are you alone or is there anybody around you? He said, well, my friend Terry is here. I said, your friend Terry is there with you at the bar. I said, uh, Terry, 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 hmm. what's Terry's last name? He said, what difference does it make what my friend Terry's last name is? I said, this is what I need to know to solve your problem. Do you need, do you want me to solve it or not? Yeah, 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 I do. Okay, great. What's Terry's last name? Terry Good. Uh, my uncle, Terry. <laughs> my mother's brother. My mother's brother is standing next to a man in a random bar in San Bernardino, California, calling me at 11 o'clock at night to fix his water bill. I said, hey, I know how to solve this problem for you. You need to let, let me talk to Terry. He says, why do you need to talk to Terry? I said, because this is what it's going to take to fix your bill. Do you want me to fix it or not? Yeah, okay, okay. And then I hear, he wants to talk to you. Why does he want to talk to me? I don't know. Just talk to him. I need to get this fixed. And then I hear the familiar voice of my Uncle Terry on the phone. Hello? I said, hi, Terry. This is Jason Coker. Jason? What are you doing at the water company? <laughs> Terry, I'm not at the water company. I'm in my bed in Utah, wondering why your friend is calling me from a bar in San Bernardino. I don't know. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Well, I mean, you know, we just got out of jail yesterday and we're just celebrating. Right. Okay. So Terry, how is it that he got my number? Why did you give him my number? I swear I didn't give him your number, Jason. He just picked up the phone and he called and randomly called you. I'm like, really? Why would he have my number? He said, I have no idea. I don't know what's going on. I mean, I, oh, I know what's going on. <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is God telling you to clean up your life and go home and be with your family and figure things out. F for Terry, this was one of those like weird experiences that couldn't be explained. It was uh, an experience that I couldn't explain. It's an experience I still can't explain. But it was a moment in his life when all the threads of his life came together in some way, shape, or form to embody a kind of warning, a kind of last chance for him to pull things together. This, I think, is essentially the spirituality that's at the heart of Esther. For a lot of people, being a Christian or being spiritual or being a person of faith means something different. For some people, being spiritual means believing in God. It means believing in Jesus. It means believing in Allah. It means believing in something that's bigger than you. And holding those beliefs gives you a sense of security, a sense of safety in your life. For other people, spirituality means experiencing the supernatural. It means that you chase supernatural experiences. It means that you pray for people to be healed, or maybe you receive prayer to be healed. It means that you believe that those supernatural things can and do happen, and so you chase after them. You chase after opportunities for people to speak God's word to you in some way. For other people, spirituality is something different. It's a kind of 
intimate connection with God. There's this sense that there is not only a God in the universe, but that that God is someone that we can be connected to relationally, that we can hear in some way from that God, that we experience a sense of being unified with God. That's really the spirituality of many of the mystics in Christian history, to experience a sense of oneness with that greater power in the universe. For some people, spirituality is something totally different. It means, you know, wearing crystals or burning sage or meditating for hours every day so that you can have that sense of connection or that sense of meaning or that sense of purpose. I don't know if you've noticed, but there are all kinds of ways of being in the world. But for Esther, and for people like Esther, Esther's spirituality wasn't about a kind of booming voice from heaven. Esther didn't experience a miraculous parting of the sea. She didn't experience a miraculous healing. She didn't see loaves of bread multiplied so that people could eat. She didn't have a crusty old prophet walk out of the wilderness and give the oracle of God to her in some sort of very powerful way. For Esther, Esther's spirituality was simply making sense of her life in a time of crisis. Being able to see that all the threads, all the coincidences, all the little decisions and opportunities of her life had come together for such a time as this. That even though she couldn't explain how she ended up as the queen of Susa, that it uniquely put her in a place to do something. For Esther, I think her spirituality was this moment of clarity. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm supposed to do. I think a lot of people experience spirituality in exactly that way. When they hear other people talking about miracles, they scratch their heads. They don't know what that's like. When they hear people talking about having a deep, close, loving relationship with Jesus, they feel inferior and inadequate because they have never experienced that. But for them, spirituality means looking at the big picture of their lives and recognizing that they have a purpose. That their unique set of gifts, their unique set of circumstances have placed them perfectly, coincidentally, in exactly the right spot at the right time to do the right thing. And spirituality means making sense of that chaos, believing that there is something bigger that brings all those threads together into the beautiful tapestry that is your life and your life's purpose. I think when we have a sense of purpose for our lives, when we know why we're here, when we know what we're made for, when we know what this moment has called us to do, it's easier to have courage. It's easier to stand for others, even if it puts you at risk, when you know this is what I was made for. 
everything in my life has brought me to this point. And if I don't do it, then I will be denying my existence. That is also a kind of spirituality. And for many people, maybe even most people, that's what they can relate to. More than miracles, more than the idea that Jesus is their boyfriend, more than burning sage or lighting candles, all those things are good. But all those things aren't for everyone. Amen? Amen. My question for you today as we just continue our worship and our reflection is, do you know your purpose? Do you know what you were made for? And I will say it's okay if you don't. Esther didn't know until that moment. Sometimes we can't know until that very moment when we are called to decide. And then it all makes sense. Until that moment comes, being a person of faith really just means being faithful. Until you get to that place where you know, this is the choice I was called to make. Amen?